your brothers have, have obviously set some, some standards that are tough to follow. Has it been real difficult being the baby? Well, yeah, because everyone expects me to be uh, just as good as, as my brothers, to be just as talented as they are. And, and, well, I'm me, not them. Do you have problems getting people to see you as you and not just somebody who's tagging along on the, on the coattails of brothers' fame? Yeah, it, it's, it's hard sometimes. It's like, hey, this is me, Janet, you know. Oh, you're Michael Jackson's sister. I say, no, Michael Jackson's my brother. Not a bad way of looking at it. You've, done, you've got a lot of fun. Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Sin Media, where throughout the duration of this program, we'll be deconstructing 30 years of one of the most successful music catalogues by Jimmy Jam. I just think how good she is. I mean, she is so amazing. Terry Lewis. The thing that stands out to me is that it's always heartfelt. And Janet Jackson. There's a, a great deal of love and understanding there. And I'm their little girl. <laughs> this will not be your typical documentary. While there will be a narrative to follow, we'll also be listening to selected tracks from each album with a more analytical approach. That will further illustrate the relationships and genius between one of the most influential teams in modern music. Let me give you an example of that now. Pleasure Principle is one of the standout tracks from our subject's first album together, Control, but more on that album later. As you're listening to this, ask yourself, what are you hearing exactly? Is it the LM2 Lin drums? It's that classic 80s OB8 synth bass. Monty Myers, Minneapolis funk guitar. Jimmy Jam, several layers of synthesizers. Or more likely, the reason you're listening to this in the first place, Janet Jackson. There's no right or wrong answer, but remember, a song is made up of multiple layers that enable the overall sound rather than focusing in on one particular facet. You may feel something different focusing in on a particular instrument, but the overall emotion when listening to a composition as complex as this is typically inspired by everything involved, including the post-production.
Reverberation gives the instruments or vocals a sense of space in the mix, whether real or added artificially. It adds a controllable sonic atmosphere to where everything may have sounded dry before, like listening to music in a stadium rather than a garage. If you're listening on a stereo system or headphones, you'll notice each instrument has its own space. Let's break that down for a second. Take note to where the guitar is placed between the two channels. And now I'll fade everything back in. These are the fundamentals of making music, like adding one coat of paint on top of another. We'll have many more examples of this throughout this program. Before we begin, let's understand where everybody came from, starting in the early 70s in Minneapolis. I walked through the lunchroom one day, and in the lunchroom we had a piano. And I walked through and I see Jimmy Jam with a crowd of girls standing around him, serenading the girls. And I said, man, this dude's kind of cool. Well, my first impression of Terry would be the equivalent of love at first sight. It was so cool. So we're walking through the dorms, and everybody's dorm rooms are open like the first day. And I walked past this dorm room doors open I'm hearing Cool in the Gang playing loud and I walk in I see a brother with a red black and green bass playing along to Cool in the Gang playing all the parts and I'm looking at this dude it's Terry seeing him was like I gotta get to know this dude like he was like gonna be my older brother or my best friend or something like I just I just knew when I when I met him and the music was so good he looked so cool so at the end of the project uh, for the summer we had a dance. I asked the counselor, I said, can we put together a band and kind of play some songs? And he said, yes. I already had a, a little band together. So I went and asked Jimmy, I said, hey man, I got this little band together. I want to put together something to play for this uh, little thing coming up. So he consented to play. We went and stole his dad's keyboard. And uh, we got together and terribly played the, the little gig. And we've been playing together ever since off and on. But then when we wrote, we had a lot of trouble um, because I came up listening to Seals and Crofts and America and Chicago and stuff like that. He grew up listening to P-Funk, Earth, Wind & Fire, that kind of stuff. Over time, as we got to know each other better, we figured out how to make his funky bottom and my pretty top or whatever you want to call it to work together. And at the end of the day, the best idea wins. So it's not whether it's his idea or my idea. It's about the best idea. 
At this time, Minneapolis was giving birth to many amazing musicians that would go on to become legends of the studio stage and pop culture in general, but some were set to become more legendary than others. I met Princeton Junior High School. I um, Actually, we were in a piano class together, and it wasn't really much of a piano class. It was kind of a way to get out of school for an hour. I thought I was a pretty good keyboard player at that point in time, but I remember Prince could just play rings around me. Like, like it was a whole nother thing that he had, and I thought I was good, and he could just do stuff, and I just was like, man, this dude's nuts. By 1981, Prince already had three albums that, while weren't as renowned compared to his later work, they were enough for the industry and fellow musicians to take note at what he was clearly building up to. This enabled Prince to have his own side projects, which others would often front. He did a song with Morse called Party Up. He told Morse that if he did the song with him, he could take the credit and get paid for it, or he'd do a band for him. Morse chose the band. So, like a month later, I get a call from Morse. Morse said, I want you to be the bass player. And he said, well, put together, keep together the band you got. And in that band at that time, we had Alexander O'Neill was our singer. Jelly Bean Johnson was our drummer. Monty Moyer was our keyboard player. And I was jabbing at Jimmy to get back in the group to get him to come and be the other keyboard player. Eventually that happened. And so we went on for the next month and they came back and we, they started to record. We had a meeting. Alex couldn't see eye to eye with, with Prince about the paper. And so uh, this whole band thing is cute and everything, Prince, but yeah, you know, yeah, I, you know, yeah. Alexander O'Neill need the paper. Yes, yeah, right. So they went back out on tour. Morris called back, said that I'm going to be the front guy. So put Jellybean back in. Jellybean was already our drummer. And that's when it became the time. Was there anybody when you were growing up that you would have stood outside in Times Square? Ah, yeah, definitely. Prince? Yeah. And uh, the time, for sure. That was just You would have been jumping up and down like that I, little I kid over there. I was such a fan, and I went to the concert, and I had to stand next to my mother, and I really didn't want that because the lyrics were so nasty. The Time released three albums between 1981 and 1984. While the albums themselves were mostly Prince and Morris Day, the band's strength was in their live act and would often rival Prince's early incarnation of the revolution as the best on the bill each night. Jam and Lewis were fired from the time after they were unable to attend a gig due to a cancelled flight. If they hadn't been producing the SOS band at the time, something that Prince told them not to do, they would have been where they were required. As they continued producing artists like Thelma Houston and Force MDs, Janet had already released two albums, the first titled Janet in 1982, and the second Dream Street in 1984. Both were moderate successes, but featured no significant input by Janet herself. Coming from America's family of music, the Jacksons, she felt the pressure to break out and become her own artist, something that she seemed capable of from the beginning. It was really weird how my father even found out that I had a voice really... Um... I've been writing music since I was nine, and my parents have a studio at their house, so we'd go into the studio whenever we felt like it in the middle of the night, and we'd, all, all of us, we'd lay down tracks, and I wrote this song, and I played all the parts, sang the melody, 
put everything down and I left the reel on the machine. So when one of my other brothers came to put down his stuff, he he heard this song. So when I came home from school, they were all discussing the song that I had written. And that's when my father said, you need to sing. But I don't want to sing. I, I, I want to do other things. And he, he thought I should make a go at it, so I did. After a number of successes producing other artists following their departure from the time, Jam and Lewis were ready to take on much bigger projects. Basically, they sent us the roster and they just said, uh, John McLean, who was the A&R person there, he said, uh, anybody on our roster you'd like to do? And we said, we want to do Janet. We just felt something. First of all, just talent. She was a great, had a great voice, but she also had a great attitude. And we thought that the attitude was never being brought out of her. And we thought as producers and writers, we could do that. We had, we first, we had a meeting with Janet and her dad and everybody, and they played her... Like, the, whatever the last record we had done, which I think was Heat of Heat by Patty Austin. Which scared her to death, because it was a record we did for Quincy Jones. had strings, and it was all big, and, you know. And she was like, I'm not sure that I want my record to sound like this. And we were like, no, 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 it's not going to sound, no, I don't know why they're playing this. This has nothing to do with what we're going to do. So anyway, she came to town. She came to Minneapolis. No bodyguards, no nothing. She brought a friend of hers, Melanie, her friend. Uh, we rented her a car to drive, a little Chevy Blazer. Jimmy Perry felt that I should get away from my environment here just to get to another one, which was Minneapolis. And, uh, when I first got there, I thought we would go straight into the studio, but they gave me like a, like a week to fool around and have fun. So About five days in, she said, when are we going to actually start working? And we said, oh, we've been working. And we showed her the lyrics to control. And she started reading the lyrics, and she said, well, wait, this is what we've been talking about. And we said, exactly. And she said... So whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? Like, yeah. And it was like a light bulb went off in her head. Because nobody had ever asked her what she wanted to write about. Nobody asked her what she wanted to sing about. They just gave her songs. And we were like, no, 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 you got to be part of the process here. And that's how the Control Records started. We learned things about her, and we incorporated those things into the music. I had gone through so much at that age when I began working with Jimmy and Terry. I felt that I can't be the only young adult in this world that is experiencing these feelings, having these issues. So I put them, put them down. It is a declaration of independence, but uh, while I was writing it, I wasn't trying to declare anything. It, it, it was just what I was feeling, like I said, just putting my feelings on record. That's the way I've always written. That's the only way I know how to Getting her to feel comfortable and open up to us and get things off her chest, you know, so she would feel like, I mean, being a producer is like being a counselor sometimes. And uh, Jenna had a lot of things to get off her chest. She'd tell us things, we'd write it down or remember it. And uh, that's how we put the album together. So it was just getting to know each other.
The recording sessions for Control took place between August and October of 1985. The album was released that following February. In spite of the thematic strategy behind the project, no one could have anticipated how successfully the album would resonate with the general public. In addition to Janet making a name for herself as herself, Jam and Lewis made their own staple as a production team. Despite their self-proclaimed limited knowledge of studio equipment, old and new, they showed that they were willing to adapt, which turned out to be a significant attitude in a period of constant change and innovation. The Lindrum was, um, first of all, it was the staple of uh, a lot of Prince records, uh, the LM1. When we started producing, we had uh, really the LM, we got the LM2, and then we had the uh, the DMX, and those were like the two kind of go-to drum machines for us. So the Control album is almost all Lindrum. I mean, we triggered some other drums, but like if you listen to like even the song Control and the big breaks on that, the and the well, the, that's the 808 toms, but sampled into a Lindrum. So the Lindrum became sort of the basis for all that stuff. Nasty was the same way. The the kind of um, noise, noisy beginning. The that's all Lindrum. But it was just taking the sounds that were there and tuning them way different than they're supposed to be. Like, you know, something that was supposed to have a sound like... If you tuned it down, all of it was... All of a sudden, it was like... You know... terrible time for drummers because the drummers that didn't accept the drum machine actually were out of work for probably about 10, 15 years. The ones that embraced it, they continued to work because they became great drum machine programmers because nobody can program a drum machine like a drummer because they understand. You have to embrace technology. You have to because whatever it gives you, you have to be able to apply it to what you do. I don't like no nasty girl. I don't like no nasty food. When I was in Minneapolis, I was on my way to an exercise class, and Jimmy, he wanted me to, to take his blazer, but it was only a block away, so my friend and I, we, we told him that we'd walk. We decided to walk. Yeah. We had the exercise class, and on the way back to the hotel, these guys, I think they had been drinking a little bit, they started <laughs> really, really flirting and saying some really nasty things, and that's how I came up with the concept. Later on, Jimmy and Terry played me a track, mm-hmm. which was the nasty track, and that's how we sure. came about that. how she sings her vocal almost becomes part of the instrumentation because of the way she attacks the words she's singing nasty it can't be nasty it's got nasty a lot of people ask me am i a feminist and i i a lot of people have different definitions of feminist so i i just say if it's someone a woman who's taking control of her life it's one of her career just getting into into the things like that then i say then i am feminist 
as a producer, it made it so great because a lot of times if you had a funky track and you put a singer with it and the singer couldn't kind of keep up with the funk and the attitude of the track, it would be like, eh, it didn't work. She would help propel the track along because of her little... She would always kind of do that as she was singing, and, and it would become, you know, another funky element. Hey, who's that thinking nasty thoughts? Who's that in that nasty car? Nasty was probably the first kind of swing beat song that was popular, and I think the effect that the album had was it got people thinking outside the box a little bit as to what R&B is. Oh, you nasty boys. The control singles in of themselves were their own experiences. With the popularity of extended mixes during the 80s, often artists would loop instrumental sections to make the recordings longer or put out the original unedited versions. Jam and Lewis, though, took Nasty one step further. They simply took those percussive elements in the original and overdubbed new instruments over the top, turning the track into something almost unrecognizable from the original. summer mix of Nasty is an 18-minute breezy funk workout that set ablaze radio and clubs after its release. It's notable for a number of things, including the team's first collaboration with legendary trumpeter Herb Alpert. This also marks an early use of sampling vocals, which would become common in not just their later work, but music in general. While using an OV-8 synth as a bass on most of the first two albums Janet Jam and Lewis had worked on, this remix is a notable exception. Listening to it, it's fairly easy to understand why Prince originally wanted Terry as his bass player. of the success of Control, Janet was keen to make another profound declaration of what was going on inside her mind, despite what the public may have expected. The album and the film is about people united through dance and music, dealing with a lot of the social problems we have. I feel that there's one thing that we all have in common, and that's music. I know a song can't change the world, but if our music could inspire some of the people and make them want to join hands and, and begin to deal with a lot of the social problems we have, then, then hopefully we could make some sort of progress. And that's pretty much what it's all about.
Along with the socially conscious theme, the team continued to pump out the non-political dance hits as previous with Control. Okay, so Escapade. So the idea of Escapade was that we wanted a song, Janet wanted a song that you would hear like at a basketball game or a sporting event, like a really up-tempo record that everybody would want to sing along with. So that was the kind of the seed of the idea. was a sp1200 drum machine and it was just a stock sound that came with the machine we actually had never had used the sp1200 but we've broken out we had it but we hadn't used it um it's just a real simple beat obviously well i'd like to be with you and you know it's friday too i hope we can find the time this weekend to relax and unwind I got really good at playing with both hands, playing a bass part with my left hand while doing chords with my right hand. Escapade was a song where the bass line was, I believe, a DX7, and the upper hand was playing the which was a mirage midi with something, another string keyboard, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I don't really remember. The record was basically done with me playing like that with the drum beat. And that was it. go back and redo it but with janet the thing we always did was we always would let her sing and then we'd fill the track in around her vocal because we always wanted her vocal to be as important as everything else so rather than finish the track and have her sing it we'd always get it to a point where we'd say is it good enough to sing and she'd say yes then we put her vocal on we never went back and changed that track when are we leaving i mean i've been saying this for like an hour are we going where are we going to? Let's um, go to like Hawaii. Oh my god, Hawaii. No. Oh. Like bitching like whore. Tasty waves do cool buzz. And escapade. My mind's tired. Work so hard. Troubles for another day. Ooh, oh, come go with me. We've got it made. Ooh, 
Let me take you on an escapade Come on baby, let's get away Let's save our troubles for another day if you're a fan of the song Escapade and own some of the single remixes, you may have noticed that some angrier vocals seem to have been recorded at some point. Now, I'd always thought it was a bit strange that Janet would record a couple of lines just for a remix, but after some investigating, I found this. same drums as the album version, but has recorded a guitar, organ and bass, and of course those vocals. According to the labelling, it's the Escapade MPLS mix, which typically stands for Minneapolis. This new version was obviously an experiment more than anything, but for me it shows Janet becoming more and more comfortable, not just in the studio, but the people she had around her. Keep grooving, y'all. I don't know the words. I don't remember. Ah, oh, this is dog, Jimmy. Wait a minute. It's not on this piece of paper. Wait, stop. Oh, well, that's it. I can't do no more. I can't take no more. Fade it. Fade it out now. Come on now. Come on, fade it now. I'm through. Oh, God is out in here, Lord. I'm on faint. I'm on faint. Y'all better fade it. Fade it now. Too funky, fade. Fade. Another number one song, Come Back to Me. Yeah. Number, congratulations Thank again. You. Seems like we say congratulations to you every seven or eight weeks. You know, another song has <laughs> gone number one. While showing us a more sensual side on the last album with Funny How Time Flies, Janet was ready to use her smooth vocal style for something a little more vulnerable and emotive. Jam and Lewis already had most of the arrangement in their heads, but they still found it necessary to bring in other musicians when the synthesizers weren't quite articulating the sound they were looking for. 
Conducting the strings, "Come Back to Me" becomes one of Janet's most sincere and emotional songs of the album and her career. Come back to me, I'm begging you, please. Come back to me, I want you to come back to me. I'm begging you, please. Come back to me. When I spoke to Lee Blask, he told me that he originally heard a very basic version of the song with an even more basic idea of what they wanted for the string arrangements. It probably would have sounded a little something like this. Which of course turned into this. vocals once the instrumental was done, and within just three main takes, what we hear on the album was comped. It's rather surprising to hear that Janet herself doubted her ability. I wish I could sing like Whitney. I guess that's why God didn't give me a wife, because I'd probably be too hard to handle. Rhythm Nation would earn Janet countless accolades for the music, the dance, and the videos. It set a record for having seven top five singles from one album, while wrapped in a certain charming naivety, which Janet later admitted to. Its political awareness raised the relevance for what needed to change in the oncoming generations. You are embarking on a new project. You have a new album, a new record label. Tell us uh, about the album and and how the project evolved. During Rhythm Nation, it was an idea that I had to uh, go a little further, do something that I hadn't done before. Basically, trying to do that with each project, and uh, it's about love, the highs and the lows of love. That's what this album is about. Let's talk about、uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Why did you decide to、uh, once again、uh, do another album with them? Well, the way I always thought of it is, if it's if it's not broke, don't try to fix it.、Mm. You know what I mean? We've had such great success, and the chemistry works so well together. Why try something different? Like a moth to a flame burned by the fire, 
James Brown. Start with a James Brown sample, Papa Don't Take No Mess. One of my favorite James Brown songs ever. So that's the guitar part. You know, the vapors. I mean, there's tons of songs that have used it, right? So that was that was number one. Um, Impeach the President, which is the drum sample. The right? Just a classic drum sample. So taking those two elements of hip-hop and then thinking about putting chords over the top of it and making an actual song on it with changes and that whole thing with a, with a vibe. That was the, the dream in my, in my head. And what happened was we were getting better as producers at that point. And what used to happen in the early days is we would have something in our mind and it would come out totally different than what we thought, but it would still come out good. But it would not be what we heard in our heads. This was one of the first records we did. What we heard in our head was exactly what came out. For myself, when I hit about 14 years old, I really got into jazz. Like Miles Davis and Bill Evans and Chet Baker. I'm gonna take you places you've never been before and you'll be so happy. And while I was actually on tour with Rhythm Nation, I had the idea for this album, which I've done, but to what extent I would basically open up and talk about love, that I didn't have. But I knew that I wanted it to be about, to have this ongoing thing of love throughout it. So when we got all the elements together, I remember there was a guy named Mark Mazzetti who worked at AM Records, and this was Janet had moved to Virgin at this point. And I played the track for Mark Mazzetti because he was a huge Janet fan, and I said, what, is, what do you think of this? He said, oh my God, I love this. He said, this is a smash, and Janet heard it. I said, she hasn't heard it yet. He said, oh, I love this. This is, oh, she's going to love this. This is great. So when Janet came to the studio later, I put the track on, and I said, listen to this. And I was all proud. <laughs> listen to this. And she's like, yeah, it's okay. I was like, Really? Yeah, it's okay. Let's work on uh, something, something, something else. I'm like, okay. So I was like, wow, what? Maybe I did something wrong. So anyway, she was getting. We were getting ready to take a break for the holidays, is around Christmas, and so uh, I just made her a cassette with all the songs we were working on. Right. So she goes on vacation for a couple of weeks. She comes back to the studio. Uh, she walks in the door and she said, "Oh my God, we got to work on that track." And I said, "What track?" That track you gave me, oh my God, that track. We got to work on that track. I said, what track are you talking about, Janet? The track you gave me, oh my God. And she puts it on and I said, the track you don't like? She said, oh my, oh, she said, oh no. She said, but it can't, we were listening. We were, she was in Anguilla and she said, we were in Anguilla and all of a sudden the track came out and we were looking at the ocean and everybody was like, wow, what is this? And she said, I get it, I get it. You know, whatever. I said, okay, good. She was um, actually staying at my house and uh, she was had a bedroom at my house. And about two in the morning, my phone, my intercom goes off. And she goes, that's the way love goes. But but not in a bad way. Not in a, that's the way love goes, like it's messed up. But in a good way, that's the way love goes. And I said, okay, great. We'll hit it tomorrow at the studio. And um, and we did. And, and she basically came up with all of the, the melodies and all the stuff for it. And then the one thing we added was the Like a Moth to a Flame Bird by the Fire. And then we sampled her voice. So that's her voice kind of doing that in different octaves and stuff. My love is blinding, you feel my desire. That's the way I love, like, my fire. My love is blinding, you feel my desire. 
We played the first single, but I understand the second single, uh, titled If, has a rock feel to it. And one of the unique qualities of that song is the sounds that you've incorporated in the record. Can you somewhat elaborate on that and, and tell me what to expect? Well, it's it's very eclectic. It has there's a funkiness, there's a rock feel to it. There's um a little bit of strings and. Yes, I guess you just have to hear it. It's very eclectic. It's very different. Now you want to set it up for us? Um, this is if. <laughs> if is another amazing layering of instruments. What stands out most is that on top of the overdubbed drum tracks are five drum loops that run throughout the song. Let's isolate each and go through them. Here's the first. The second. The third. The fourth. The fifth. And now all together. While Janet had already mastered the layering of background vocals on Rhythm Nation, If is another standout. For someone who doesn't have a large vocal range, she certainly knows how to utilize it at its best. Let's have a breakdown of what's going on here. I'll move through the various sets that were done. Okay, that's just the background vocals. Now on to the lead, we have one stereo pair. One high vocal. And one low vocal. This creates a very interesting sound that if was praised upon its release. And now here's the leads and backgrounds. All I've got to say is if I was your girl, all the things I do to you, I'd make a call of my name, might ask who it belongs to. If I was your woman, the things I do to you, but I'm not, so I can't, then I won't. But if I was your girl, was your girl, all the things yeah, I do to you, yeah, yeah. I'd make a call of my name, might ask who it belongs to. For the record, everything you hear on this track, and even most of the album, is remarkably just keyboards. Different ways of 
If was eventually released following the debut of That's the Way Love Goes, both enjoyed significant success, boosted not only by their high-quality craftsmanship in their productions, but also the videos that followed. That's the Way Love Goes in particular depicts a less reserved Janet in the company of her friends, whom were her dancers for the tour during that period. This more open social attitude would shape the overall feeling of the album, which continued to diversify and blend music categories. One of her dancers was in the studio and uh, when we were recording. And she's the one that does the, uh, here we go now, get busy. That's her singing, because uh-huh. she just had this tone. Here we go now. Here we go now. Here we go now. Get busy. And we thought, wow, this is, this is perfect. But it really, the record really happened because all the dancers were around. And you could actually, as you were making the track, you could literally watch the dancers and the way they would move to something and know that you were on the right track with, you know, with what you were doing. After allegations of sexual abuse against a child, an addiction to painkillers and a period of seclusion, Janet's brother Michael was readying his comeback. To do so, he calls on his sister to feature on the first track of his new album, History, Past, Present and Future, Book One. We were so blessed to have him walk into our room and he liked the song that we had written and he wanted to record it, but he didn't record it right then. He took a copy of it, he went home, he studied it, and we waited for two days for him to return. All right, let's deconstruct Scream. If you're a fan of the song, you might notice something different right off the bat. So, aside from that slightly more percussive intro, those strings you hear were taken off of the final mix for the album and reused on a remix of the track by Jamie Lewis on the single. Scream features one of Janet's most unique vocal recordings, and when she re-recorded it for a live performance in 2009, it was unique yet again. For a bit of fun, I've put the original 1994 recording in the right channel and the new 2009 recording in the left, just to compare.
One of the explored ideas, perhaps to hit a bit harder, was to have the background vocals on the chorus more explanatory. Judging from the stories about this recording session, Michael found it extremely hard to contribute swear words to the song, so only did so once in the final version. From a production side, this track is a marvel. Not only does it sample Janet's The Knowledge, but also Michael's In The Closet, both as percussive elements. Another production that was proposed to Michael and Janet as a duet was Runaway, which became one of the two new tracks on her new greatest hits album. Okay, first let's listen to the track as it was presented to Michael and Janet, with its original guide vocal. I've seen the world, been to many places Made lots of friends, many races I've had such fun around the world, it's true African skies with Nairobi mood I fell asleep in Tuscany and dream The one thing that's missing is you Sometimes when producers present a track to an artist they'll have someone record an intentionally bad guide vocal so as not to corrupt the vision the artists themselves might have for the way it's supposed to be sung Now I'm not entirely sure who that is singing but intentionally bad or not I think the less said about it the better 
Alright, now let's go with Janet's version. If you're a fan of the song, you'll notice something different. For each line, there's a different sound effect associated with it. choice of samples. Not only do we have a vocal that was used on screen, but also what appears to be a vocal from Michael Jackson's Remember the Time. Here's the vocal I'm talking about. And here's a very rough comparison of what I think it's doing, which I've recreated. I'm not crazy there, right? While as usual synthesized, to fit with its around the world theme, the track utilizes more exotic instruments, such as the sitar and steel drums. Escapade, Runaway seems to have had an unreleased quote-unquote Rolling Stone remix. themes of this particular record, The Velvet Rope, are going to be? It's, um, it's the most introspective album that I've done, very personal, and, and uh, it's uh, self-examination, self-discovery. It's the need, I feel, we all have to, to feel special, and what that can bring out in us, the best in us, or it can bring out the worst in us, and, and that's what this whole album is about. What I've experienced since the last album, since the Janet album, what I've gone through. I, I always write about what's going on in my life, 
at that moment what I'm feeling and that's what this is a continuation of what's been going on in my life 1997 saw a Janet completely introspective of the one we were used to opening up on subjects like depression, loneliness and abuse, the latter of which we had seen a preview of in 1993. The Velvet Rope was willing to express what Janet and the Jackson family had failed or completely refused to do successfully in the past, to open up. It was the natural thematic growth that sealed a very personal relationship with her fans, emoting to her maturing music more so than before. difficult album for me to make but the most important one got till it's gone was um first of all it was a call to Joni because growing up, um, I always loved Big Yellow Taxi. I used to skate to it at the skating rink. So I always loved that record. And being a sample person as I am, I always thought that would be a great song to put a, a sample, of, you know, put the sample into. We called her and she said, but Janet and I both called her and we, we just said, hey, we have an idea that uses one of your songs, but we don't know how you feel about sampling. And she said, I can't wait to hear it. She said, have fun. I can't wait to hear it. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The paradise. Well, I've always been a really big fan of, of Johnny Mitchell since I was a kid. My brother Randy is the one that really introduced me to her music. And actually, it was uh, an idea that, that Jimmy came up with, and uh, it worked great. And I thought uh, it would be great to have Tip rapping on the song. That's how the whole thing came about. Jay Dilla had done a remix for a brand new heavy song called Sometimes. Talking about a revolution Or maybe just a change of mind Working on my constitution I began to realize But he had done a remix to it that was just it was just his quintessential kind of stop start just the kind of it was so funky and I was like we gotta do something like that we had an, a drum programmer named Alex Richberg he set my whole studio up put an MPC in there hooked it up to this Insonic keyboard I had called a MR76 and he said make a record over the weekend just using this stuff. Do not hook up to the way you normally do it. You got to use the drum machine. You got to hook all this stuff together. So on a, a Sunday, I went in. I'm thinking I got to do it as simple as possible because I don't really know how to work this stuff, right? So I did the little keyboard part. And I looped it. So it's like, okay, that's easy. Now I got to do a bass line. And I'm going to do the bass line drunk like Dilla would do a bass line. So the bass line was but I played it real drunk. Like real drunk, right? So the last thing was the beat. 
So the beat was real simple in my mind because it was just right. Problem is, I didn't know how to get the MPC to swing. So it was just kind of going boo, buka, buka, boo, boo, buka. And I was like going, no, this ain't right. And I got frustrated and I gave up. And I said, okay, that's it. I'm done. So the next day, Monday, I come into the studio. Alex comes into the studio. He said, what did you do over the weekend? I said, I came up with a track, but I can't get the, the drum machine to swing. And he puts it up and he listens and he goes, oh, you just got to do this. And he hits like two buttons and now I'm there. Now we got it. So the Joni Mitchell sample, I took and I put it in what's called an AMS. And it was this little sampler thing. It only had like six seconds of sampling. But all I needed was... That's all I really needed. So I put the sample in there, and I basically just triggered it. I just every time the, the beat would come around, I would just go, and then I started going, and started doing stuff like that. And then the toughest part of that song for us was we had a whole different lyric and a whole different melody that Janet sang that didn't work. It just dra- kind of dragged the song down. And um, one day she just we just were messing with different melodies and she came up with the... She came up with that little line and he was like, okay, now let's put that against everything we got. And that ended up being kind of the record. With all the albums that I've done, I always write about what's going on in my life. And this is a continuation of what's happened since the last album. What this album speaks about. It is the most adult album that I've done. And I'm finding more and more kids are starting to catch on and understand it and are really getting into it. Do you think your audience is growing with you? Or do you, or do you think that uh, you're also picking up the younger audience as you go along? I think my audience, we definitely grow together. Um, I, I mean, you have to, really. I mean, you get older and, and the world changes around you and you make lots of changes in your life. And, and uh, like I said, I write about those changes. But also, like I said before, a lot of teenagers have actually come up to me and, and so they can totally relate to certain uh, subject matters on, on uh, this album. is the perfect surmise of what was achieved on the Velvet Road project, with the heavy Jay Diller inspiration clearly evident in the drums. So let's start with that. Here's the first kick drum rhythm. 
And here's the second. Isn't that an interesting beat? I'll pan the two side by side so we can hear what's going on better. Alright, I'll build the percussion up now. Here's Mike Scott's guitar, another highlight, whom was a session musician for Jam and Lewis during this period. anyone in her life, not just any guy, she wants one guy in particular and only that person doesn't want to be with anyone else and will do whatever it takes to get that guy back into her life again. Janet's vocal on here highlights how far she'd come from wishing she'd sounded like somebody else to someone who owns every affectation as well as every ability and inability. Her writing through her singing during this period reflected her vulnerabilities as an artist, in its best and worst ways. And that's why The Velvet Rope worked. Gonna break it down, break it down, break it down Gonna break it down, break it down, break it down Janet starred in the sequel to the 1996 Eddie Murphy film The Nutty Professor. 
in which she contributed a song that would find its place on the next album released that following year. Once they told me that I had gotten a part, I actually offered to do um, a song. And they said they wanted to ask me, but they were didn't know if I'd say yes or no. But uh, I had actually offered to do I didn't know if they would be interested or not. And I, I just, I don't know. I guess being a singer, I thought, knowing that they had the contract for the last nutty, uh, I, I thought it would be fun to do something on this one. Doesn't Really Matter was a great preview of what was forthcoming. The lyrics are carefree and positive, and the music, energetic and uplifting. It was an introduction to the general feel of where Janet was heading as a songwriter, and the type of content we could expect. but almost every instrument on this track is treated like percussion, which would make sense given the team's James Brown influence. And Janet will continue to deliver perfect vocal performances. Well, usually. I am so out of breath and sharp and flat and long and short. And doesn't really matter what they Janet on a shortlist for having a number one in three consecutive decades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there definitely is, and you can hear it on the album. I mean, it's a, it's a very up, very hopeful, optimistic, happy album, and, and that's that's the space that I'm in. There is a sense of freedom. There's been a lot going on, and that I've experienced. Since well, a lot of changes.
the concept behind it really is is uh, I have this thing that the guys aren't asking me out. And every guy that I actually have gone out with, I've always been the one that has done the asking. And she, did, well, a few of them have said that, that it's intimidation. Whether it really is that or not, I don't know. But just thinking it would be nice to be asked by someone you want to be asked out. <laughs> when sampling came out and I remember people talking to me all the time about like well when Beethoven was making music and you know when Mozart was making music and I'm going these guys would be using this stuff whatever's available I don't care who your Beethoven or whatever you can say if all he had was a piano that's cool but if he found a harpsichord or he found a Celeste or he found whatever it was they were going to use it I mean I love sampling I love doing a record like All For You that samples Glow of Love by Change and Luther Vandross and have the writer of Glow of Love come up to me and go man you bought me my house you know because I'm not I'm not into stealing I'm not into taking something illegally and using it but if people get credit for it the idea of introducing people to new music through old music and the music I grew up with flowers bloom in morning dew seems to say it's a pleasure when you treasure all that's new and true and gay easy living and we're giving what we know we're dreaming of we are one having fun walking in the glow of love the project also saw a collaboration with another significant influence of janet's carly simon you know that was just it was never supposed to be a duet i wasn't going to do a duet on this album and uh, I sampled, Jimmy and I did, uh, You're So Vain. And if you could just imagine the, the song without her in it, and just me, you know, speaking on it and singing, um, that was the original song. Uh, then I had to get her approval, obviously, uh, to uh, sample the song. And, and we spoke on the phone. She's such a sweet lady. She said she wanted to re-sing all the, all the choruses over with me. So I said, oh, this is great. Then she said she would write a few lines. We could use them, no obligation. She went back and wrote a whole song, is what she did. And it was so awesome, though, because it's like spoken word. And we married the two, Jimmy and myself. And, and I love that track, because it's, it's very um, abstract, so to speak. It's, it's really cool. You tell them, Carly. Uh. Clouds of various shapes and sizes. Most guys like to evaluate their prizes. All right, we come with so many different tricks. The apricot scarf was worn by Nick. Nothing in the words referred to Mick. Chip up on your shoulder, I just knocked it off. Show me what you're gonna do. Ain't proud to run. You have just run out of ammunition. I'm a storm cloud, baby. You can roll Son like a For a lot of fans, the All For You era was a reaffirmation that Janet, at whatever age, could still achieve what most female artists from her generation struggle with. At a time when Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera were dominating the pop scene, Janet could find her place at will. 
It further solidifies her growing confidence in herself as well as the connection with her producers. Her ever amazing discography seemed to In 2004, Janet performed as part of the Super Bowl halftime show, just a few months before the release of her next album, Demeter Joe. While performing with Justin Timberlake, a wardrobe malfunction occurred and her breast was exposed. Rehearsal videos indicate that this was not planned as the media perpetrated. The backlash, however, seemed to attribute all the blame onto Janet, whose music and videos were blacklisted from airing on a number of significant television and radio stations. Her breast was broadcasted for less than half a second. In addition to the Super Bowl incident affecting music sales, there seemed to be a significant change in the studio as well. Um, I've got lots of uh, wonderful producers on the album. Uh, Jimmy and Terry, Scott Storch, Kanye, uh, Antoine Anders, um, Babyface, Dallas Austin, lots Rockweiler. So I, it's 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 nice. Yeah. It was nice working with them. Remember the first day she said to Terry, "You know what, Terry? You write the lyrics." And Terry looked at her like, "What?" No, Terry, you can you know you can write the lyrics. I'm not. I don't really feel like I have anything to talk about. Well, you know what? Then we shouldn't be making an album. In 2006, Janet released 20 Wire. The lack of inspiration and/or direction seemed apparent. What is the most important thing you try to accomplish musically with this new album? The dance, uh, like I said, getting back to uh, uh, dancing, which means a, a tempo music that I can move to, and 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 uh, kind of going back to my roots, really, which is R&B music. In 2008, Janet's 10th studio album, Discipline, was released. It was her first album where she had not written and not worked with Jam and Lewis in 25 years. You always write your own material. Um, on this album, I, yes, in the past, yes, lyrics, melodies, but the, with this album, it was, it was different for me. Because? Because um, the uh, record company had told me that uh, there were producers that knew that I was going back into the studio and they wanted to work with me. And they wrote songs for me and wanted to submit the songs and, and wanted me to give a listen. So I, I started listening and there was stuff that I loved. So I started picking songs and started recording them. And more and more kept coming in. And before I knew it, I was done with the album. I promised you'd hear it from my lips. Now you will, this year, new music, new world tour, a new movement, I've been listening, let's keep the conversation going. Early 2014, I remember she was in LA for a brief minute and um, we actually had lunch together and um, we talked about everything but music. That was, it was really interesting. And at the end of our conversation, at the end of our lunch, I said, well, we didn't really talk any music. And she said, yeah, she said, but we'll get around to that. You know, we just needed to 
you know, catch up and reconnect. So that was kind of what we did. In kind of late 2014, I guess then, her management got in contact with us and wanted to meet with us. And so we've had a meeting with Terry and myself and, and her management. They basically said, you know, she wanted to get back together, do a record. We said, great, we're all for it. You know, our, our process, when we finally talked to Janet, we actually had a meeting with her in, in New York. And we talked about kind of the game plan for doing the record. And it was very similar to what we did on the Control album, which was we wanted to do it basically left alone. We wanted it to just be us creatively, you know, obviously bring in collaborators, but people that we felt comfortable with that were going to become sort of part of the family type of thing. At the end of the day, we were excited to work with her again, and she was excited to work with us. And that was that was really the thing that brought us together. In the time between her last album, her brother Michael had passed away and she had gotten married. While those new circumstances were addressed, she was clearly interested in exploring new themes in her music, while maintaining that sense of openness achieved on the Velvet Rope. I remember coming up with just the kind of the piano idea for it, and I sent it to her. She called me back and she said, I love this. She said, what, what, what were you thinking on this? I said, I hear after you fall, but I don't really know what else it is. I said, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking sort of about Michael, but it doesn't have to be about Michael. It can be about whatever you think it should be. She, the next day, sent me back a demo vocal on it. Who's gonna be there after it all? You're resilient, so brilliant, yes. You stand strong, but this pain you feel Never thought that a hurt could be so deep And now trust view has new meaning After you fall Who's gonna be there after you fall? That was kind of our starting point, and I remember we when we finished the session. I just said to her, I said, it sounds really good. And, and she didn't really even re really want to hear it. She never, ever will say that something sounds good with her voice on it. She'll say maybe something like, yeah, that's not too bad. I don't sound too bad on that or, or something like that. But she'll never really go, wow, I really sound great on that. Like, <laughs> you'll never hear her say that. But I thought she killed it. I thought she, she did such a great job on it. And, um, you know, we were off and running at that point. When we got towards the end of the album and we were looking for a couple of specific things and I remember the last two songs we did were uh, Damn Baby was one of them and Damn Baby was because she was at dance rehearsals and all of that all day she kind of felt like I need one more kind of dance record. And so that was one where we actually sought out that kind of record. We collaborated with a guy named Dim Joints, who's a tremendous uh, producer. And um, 
he came up with kind of the concept for the track and the whole thing. We played her the track and what we had kind of finished and stuff. And she came back very tired and kind of not very happy. And she immediately got a smile on her face. And she said, this is exactly what I feel we need. So kind of as a finishing thing on the album. She had said at a certain point, that we're done with songs now. We're not going to do write any more songs. We're not going to do any more songs. We have to choose what we got because we had deadline. Another collaborator that we worked with uh, on the album, uh, Tommy. Uh, Tommy had sent this track. And, and I told Tommy, I said, don't send any more tracks, Tommy. We're good. We, we, we got what we need. So he said, okay, I'm just going to send you this one more. I woke up in And I remember listening to it. I said, Jan, I said, do you remember when you said to me, we're not going to accept any more songs unless it's something like real special? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I remember Terry was listening to it, and Terry was like, oh my God, this is this is great. Tommy, Tommy. We called him back. We said, Tommy, you might have just bumped yourself off the record, but you, you know, with one of your other songs, but this one's going to make it. It was kind of the finishing touch, kind of the icing on the cake uh, on, on the album, because it made the, the album was very well rounded. So then it kind of, that was a, a sound and a flavor we didn't have on the album, and it came through at the, at the last minute. And uh, we, we love that record. I live through my mistakes It's just a part of growing And never for a single moment Did I ever go without your love You made me feel wanted I want to tell you how important you are to me And when Unbreakable was announced and it was confirmed that Jimmy and Terry were back working with Janet, there was a sigh of relief from fans and music lovers in general. But there was also an element of fear. Would it be another Demeter Joe situation? Or would they create something of the quality that had preceded? Well, arguably they did. And this for me is a testament to everything they do right. Their strength shines through when everyone has something to say or something to contribute finding their feet together. No interventions from record companies, no influence from fanatics, and no criticisms taken from reviews. Just Janet, Jam, and Lewis. In control and unbreakable. Terry's wife sent me a video of your daughter performing with Janet oh, oh, yeah. in L.A. as a dancer on Rhythm Nation. Oh, man, you don't even understand how that made me feel, dude. That was like full circle for me. Like, Janet said, I've never seen you like this, Terry. <laughs> like, I'm cheesing like a rat, man. Yeah, I'm man. just big smile just because I, I, 
it was for me fulfillment of everything. Like yeah. we've been making records, a lot of records for a lot of years, and then to see my baby girl on stage with Janet dancing was amazing. Yeah.